This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One new book that might be of interest is Grand Hotel Abyss, The Lives of the Frankfurt School by Stuart Jeffries. Who were the Frankfurt School and why do they matter today? In 1923, a group of young radical German thinkers and intellectuals came together in Frankfurt, determined to explain the workings of the modern world. Among the most prominent members of what became the Frankfurt School were the philosophers Walter Benjamin, Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer, and Herbert Marcuse. Not only would they change the way we think, but also the subjects we deem worthy of intellectual investigation— Their lives, like their ideas, profoundly, sometimes tragically, reflected and shaped the shattering events of the 20th century. Grand Hotel Abyss combines biography, philosophy, and storytelling to reveal how the Frankfurt thinkers gathered in hopes of understanding the politics of culture during the rise of fascism by taking popular culture seriously as an object of study, whether it was film, music, ideas, or consumerism, the Frankfurt School elaborated upon the nature and crisis of our mass-produced, mechanized society. Grand Hotel Abyss shows how much these ideas still tell us about our age of social media and runaway consumption. Grand Hotel Abyss, The Lives of the Frankfurt School, by Stuart Jeffries, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Molly Ball, the first of my two guests, just had an utterly illuminating piece published in The Atlantic, where she was a political writer before she recently moved to Time. The article, called On Safari in Trump's America, follows the Democratic centrist organization Third Way on a listening tour in Wisconsin. What Ball deftly shows is that these researchers set out to discover and confirm what they already believed to be true. And that is that Americans overwhelmingly believe in what centrist elites believe in, a worldview that somehow encompasses everything from wanting everyone to get along, support for gun control, opposition to big government, and being turned off by hard-edged class politics and partisanship. What Ball heard on this tour, however, was nothing like that at all. There were crunchy leftists suspicious of the Democratic establishment, right-wingers disdainful of young people's work ethic and even of women in the workplace at all, and union activists who believed that the Democratic Party has abandoned the working class even as Republicans are dead set on destroying it. Americans clearly told these self-described centrist listeners that they had fierce opinions some leftist ones, some rightist ones, none too milk toast. Yet the final report somehow transmuted a reality of fierce conflict into the conclusion that these people believe in something that just about no one who is not a close personal friend of Michael Bloomberg believes in. My second guest today, Eric Levitz, just published an op-ed in the New York Times that is a great companion to Ball's reportage entitled, America is Not Center-Right. 
Levitz, a political columnist at New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer, sorts through research to argue that what Americans often mean when they say they are moderate is not necessarily the combination of superficial social progressivism and neoliberalism that Wall Street-aligned third-way types think that they mean. Indeed, there is evidence that a majority of Americans support a left economic agenda. I won't preview everything we talk about in detail right now, but a big part of his argument has to do with the power of partisanship and in-group versus out-group identification. Really quick before we get started, please take a moment, if you have not already, to support the show on patreon.com slash the dig. We are aiming for 100 new supporters in November. We met that goal in October, and we can do it again with your help. So please support the left-wing independent media that you love at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thank you, and on to the show. Molly Ball, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. Since Trump's election, coastal elites have stampeded into flyover country to observe and document real Americans in the wild. You accompanied researchers from the group Third Way, which is an organizational heir of sorts to the Clintonian Democratic Leadership Conference of the 1990s. First, what is Third Way? And second, what were they looking for in Wisconsin's 3rd Congressional District? Third Way is a group of Democratic centrists, as you say, sort of the heirs of Bill Clinton's Democratic centrism. that sought to position the party uh, as acceptable to the broad swath of Americans by being pro-business, pro-capitalism, anti-big government, if you think about the types of things that Bill Clinton used to say, um, and staking out uh, generally socially liberal positions. Uh, They, for example, did a lot of pioneering research and activism on gay marriage uh, and uh, on gun control, they've been quite active. Uh, But um, balancing that with a sort of fiscal, not conservatism exactly, but fiscal hawkishness, I guess would be fair to say. Um, And uh, so, you know, this is very much in sync with, I think, the impulses of a Hillary Clinton as she's shown herself throughout her career. And you can argue about whether her actual platform in 2016 was was centrist or or more on the social justice left. But I think in terms of her fundamental political orientation, it's very much in this vein. And in fact, they advised her on a lot of her positions in the Democratic primary and the general election, particularly around things like uh, financial reform and government spending. Uh, and so, you know, this was, they were riding quite high in the run up to uh, the 2016 election because everybody assumed Hillary was going to win. And then when she didn't, uh, it was sort of a rebuke to, well, I mean, it was obviously a, a, a devastating event to everybody who voted for her, especially activists um, in the Democratic Party. But I think it's particularly acute for a group like this that was so closely aligned with her philosophy, and it was perplexing. There was this moment that I think a lot of Democrats had when they woke up the morning after the election day of, 
what is this country I live in and how did I so badly misunderstand it? How did I misread uh, the situation out there in America to the extent that I sort of don't know where I am anymore? Yeah, you write... You you write that uh, their third way's politics was in, effectively on the ballot in November and lost, and I'm guessing they don't see it that way. So how do they see it? Do they blame Clinton's loss on her moving too far left in an effort to neutralize Sanders, or what do they make of it? I think they actually do see it that way to some extent. I mean, they may have some critiques of Hillary's campaign, but they fully expected her to win, and they therefore had to go back afterwards and figure out uh, what was it that they missed, right? Just like all the pollsters did, just like all the prognosticators did. And I'm using third way to some extent as a stand-in for the entire, you know, establishment that expected Hillary to win um, because there was a sense that there must have been some sort of a blind spot uh, that made this outcome seem so inevitable uh, and then, in fact, it, it wasn't the outcome at all. So um, I, I I don't know exactly, you know, whether they've found ways to, to blame other people. But I think that the point of this tour of America uh, and the research that they're doing now is very much an attempt to, to look within themselves and say, what was it that we failed to understand? Instead of saying, oh, it was, you know, it was Robbie Moak's fault or it was the Russians or it was Comey to say, OK, we did get something wrong. We did have an approach that we thought was going to work that didn't work. So what is it about what we heard, what we thought we knew about America? What did we get wrong? Let's talk about the tour, the the portion of it that you went on in Wisconsin. Where did you go? Who did you meet with? And what did you hear? We went to Western Wisconsin, Wisconsin's third congressional district. And this was selected in part because they were looking at the districts that So Wisconsin's third congressional district is still represented by a Democrat in Congress, Ron Kind. Uh, He's a a centrist Democrat. Um, And for 20 years, this is a district that had voted Democratic in presidential elections as well, until in 2016, it swung more than 15 points and went for Trump over Hillary Clinton. So this is one of those places where something went haywire, something weird happened, something unexpected happened in 2016. But they aren't doing what some people have done in in studying these types of places and specifically only study the swing, right? Find the voters that switched from, say, Obama to Trump and study them in particular or or go in and talk to only the Trump voters and try and figure out what's motivating this sort of exotic new species. Um, it was much more about trying to understand the community as a whole. It was much more about trying to get a finger on the pulse of all of these places in America in a, in a qualitative, not a quantitative way. I think another point of this study and those like it uh, since the election has been that, you know, there were, there was all this data, there were all, all these uh, numbers and demographics and, and, analytics and, uh, you know, the Clinton campaign, like everybody else, was relying on all of this data to, to define how people were going to behave. Uh, and there was a sense that data failed and data is no longer the coin of the realm. The coin of the realm is some sort of more anecdotal, more textured understanding on, on the personal level or on the human level 
because how people the are behaving. Algorithm God failed. Exactly, exactly. The God of algorithms failed, and so there's a need to uh, get outside the numbers and into the real people. And so this listening tour, there was a, it was a series of, of seven listening sessions. They'd previously gone on sort of a scouting trip and and found some individuals who sort of could connect them with uh, more members of the community, and they set up this series of listening sessions uh, in different geographical parts of this congressional district um, and with different sorts of groups of people, whether they were activists or local business owners or um, chamber of commerce or religious leaders or those types of people, unions. Uh, and so there was, there was a series of these listening sessions where their, their goal was to not lead the conversation in a particular way and not necessarily to talk about politics at all, but to get this um, much more open-ended sense of people's lives and what they wanted to talk about and what their priorities were. I think the thought being, maybe if you only ask people about politics, they don't tell you what's really on the top of their minds. Uh, and maybe part of the problem has been imposing sort of our priorities on people. So let's hear from them what their priorities are. Which also sort of fit with the the premise of their 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 thinking, which is that Americans don't want to talk about politics. They have these more general values, and people inside the Beltway fail when they impose these these partisan and ideological categories onto ordinary people in the American heartland. Right. Um, If you think about the notion of a a third way, it is definitionally definitionally the idea that, you know, our our politics is binary. There's a left and a right. But what if there were a way to find a third way of being that was not one of those two, right? Something in the, something that, that split the difference went down the middle to find the things that people can agree on instead of this political debate that we have that's fixated on our disagreements. And so there's a little bit of a kumbaya philosophy to that, right? It's saying that, like, there are things that unite us as Americans, despite the divisive conversations that we're perpetually trapped in, whether it's culture war issues um, or ideology or whatever. Uh, And so it is very much a part of their orientation, a part of their uh, philosophy that that there is a middle that can be found, that there is... uh, a moderate center in the political debate that is somehow uh, ill-served by the divisive political debates that we end up having. And where they're right is that Americans' political beliefs and outlooks don't fit nicely into these left and right boxes. But leading into my next question, where it turns out they're pretty wrong is that where they actually fit is in some vital center. So it turns out people actually have passionate opinions. Um, just because they don't fit into two boxes doesn't mean that they don't disagree with each other passionately. So what did you hear uh, on this listening tour? Well, we heard a lot of things. And you're all, it's always going to be difficult to sum up a great variety of opinions, a great variety of personalities that you meet in perspective. Um, but, you know, this is also partly drawn from my experience over the last two years crisscrossing the country and talking to people whether it's at Trump rallies or, or, or Clinton events or just out there knocking on doors or being out in communities. Um, and my, you, as you said, people do have passionate opinions. They do have disagreements with each other. I, and I 
felt that the third way researchers were projecting onto people that they met their own desire for consensus, their own desire to have people understand one another and come together in good faith when, particularly over the last couple of years in politics, I'm not at all convinced that that's what Americans want. I'm not at all convinced that Americans wish they could get along better. In fact, I think a lot of what we've seen in the political debates of, of recent years is a desire to be further apart. Uh, a, a, uh, the, these divisions didn't come up in American life because people didn't want them there. And uh, there's a lot of, uh, you, you certainly do meet people who fret about our debased discourse and wish that we could come together. You also meet a lot of people who think that their fellow Americans are the problem and that the, the reason uh, things are bad is because of some other group of people uh, that are that are wrong or uh, that are dragging society down uh, or that are ripping them off or getting something they don't deserve. And so you hear a lot of that. Um, I, I heard plenty of that. <laughs> that could range from uh, people on the left saying that the fellow Americans who are ripping them off are the economic elite 1% and their political allies in the two major parties or people on the right saying that it's Muslims and millennials and even having women in the workplace is what in, in one case that you heard. Right, right. And there was, yeah, and there was another person, there was someone not in the groups that we heard, but in a different um, focus group that Third Way had done in Florida, who, who made the comment that that Muslims were the problem. And uh, so, yes, there's a, there was a lot of that kind of, well, you know, we're not, and, and I, and I spent a lot of time in the piece dissecting this one very dramatic moment, um, this very explicit uh, sort of pushback against the third way philosophy from this group of, I sort of shorthanded them as the hippies. I don't know if they describe themselves <laughs> that way, but they're these sort of sort of crunchy back to the land, um, this progressive community in a little rural area in Wisconsin where, you know, they've got organic farms and they've got locally sourced this and they're and uh, they're sort of idealistic and communitarian and progressive and they actually said to the third way researchers they said I you know these centrist ideals are perpetuating a broken system and we need to entertain ideas that may be seen as extreme because maybe that's going to be the only way to fix the problem and I feel like that's something I've heard over and over, um, whether it's covering, you know, the Bernie Sanders movement or covering Trump or whatever in the past couple of years, that so many Americans believe that extreme times call for extreme measures. And there is really a sense of, you talk a lot about anger, but it's a sense of radicalism out there in the electorate, uh, a, a sense that what is needed is something that maybe everybody isn't going to agree on, but that that's the only way we can fix how badly broken things are. What they said in this meeting that, you know, the centrism, the centrist politics you represent are perpetuating a broken system is kind of threatening to a sleight of hand that's the premise of the entire operation of, of organizations like Third Ways, which is that they don't have a politics. They're just about pragmatic consensus. And what the people in this meeting did was say, no, you... 
there's we have a wide ranging political conflict right now, and you're on one one of the sides of it. You're pra- you're protagonists in this conflict, and we disagree with you. <laughs> I I think that's right. I mean, I don't think they would deny that they have an ideology, but like you say, they do fundamentally see that ideology as centrist, as uh, moderate, as somewhat neutral. I mean, they're certainly a part of the Democratic Party, but they see themselves as finding solutions, practical solutions that can please everyone or that can balance competing interests in an ideal uh, and mutually agreeable way. Uh, And that is an ideology, right? It's an ideology that says that, say, cutting the deficit is an important goal and that uh, reducing spending on entitlement projects programs is, is, a, is a worthy way to do it. Uh, and that, you know, someone like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, who goes out there and, and talk, talks negatively about Wall Street and the 1% is being divisive and, uh, and, and not, not being helpful. And that the business of America is business and we need to find a way uh, for the, for the capitalist class to remain vibrant. So, um, so yeah, I think just as you said, it is it it is an ideology that um, that got called out in that instance as being something that people actually could disagree upon. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to the Dig as well. You should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, obviously you are listening to the Dig Radio, as you probably know we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support, by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listeners' support. So thank you. And now, back to the show. Briefly, some of the other groups that you sat in on, um, one was a group of union activists, and another, I think, was some curmudgeon farmers on the older end. Sure, yeah, those were sort of dramatic. Well, the curmudgeonly old farmers were um, a, a smaller—actually, I think only three of them, and they weren't all farmers, but uh, again, that was sort of my shorthand, but these are. this was a, a very rural— area, Ellsworth, Wisconsin, the cheese curd capital of Wisconsin, it calls itself. And so, you know, these are business owners and, 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 and agriculturalists and they're, uh, they were, I think it was a politically mixed group actually, but certainly culturally conservative and of the view that society is declining and very much uh, with the front seat to the Trump phenomenon. One of them talked about his uh, blue-collar employees who'd never been politically active before, seeing for the first time Trump as someone who actually spoke to them, wanting to go out and uh, and vote for that, and uh, also expressing a lot of negative opinions about government, saying, you know, the, the people are making a living off the welfare system and sucking the rest of us dry, and that, you know, it's impossible to run a business when big government is always on you and that's a problem. And so what I found in the report that Third Way ended up writing was that 
they quoted a lot of these farmers uh, saying negative things about government. They didn't quote any of the part where they said uh, negative things about uh, their fellow citizens, really. Um, and then, and the group of union guys, it was sort of the same. They um, were very bitter and discouraged about uh, Scott Walker, the Republicans, Trump. These are guys who are sort of the foot soldiers of the Democratic Party and believe that uh, the things that they see Republicans doing uh, from, you know, gerrymandering to the minimum wage are bad for working class people. But they also feel like Democrats are losing because they're not speaking to those working class people and that it's too easy for Republicans to come along and uh, say, hey, they're going to take your guns away and continue to win elections uh, with this group that, that, that doesn't see the Democratic Party being in touch with, with their needs. Um, and, and that was another instance where the, the researchers sort of felt like that was messy and divisive and, and, and discouraging, and <laughs> they would prefer to find a hopeful message. And so, you know, the, when the union guys said, you know, I wish that our leaders would do something to um, prevent all our jobs from going overseas or robots from taking all of our jobs, I don't see any upside to that. That didn't make it into the report, but when we heard someone say, oh, you know, I'm optimistic about the future, and if the robots come along, there will be jobs alongside the robots, that that did end up getting quoted. It, it's, it's so remarkable because you knew what part of your story was going to be about when you were out on the road with them, but then how, how long did you have to wait to see this report? month or two, I want to say. Yeah. I mean, that must have been quite a day for you because as you were just getting into the the meetings that you sat in in Wisconsin just bore very little resemblance to this final report, which you described, uh, which according to you described the prevailing attitude from the meetings as an intense worth work ethic that binds the community together and that helps it adapt to change. We certainly heard some of that, you continue, but it wasn't all we heard. In many cases, the report presents only one side of an issue about which we'd heard varying views. Um, For example, it quotes a local employer who sang the praises of automation, but none of the union members who worried about jobs disappearing. It quotes a technical college instructor proclaiming that crises in the education system create opportunities, but none of the public school teachers who saw their classrooms gutted by voucher programs. Do you have a sense of how this alchemy was performed? I tried to be generous to them um, and assume that it was because of sort of blind spots and, um, and, and, and sort of hearing what they wanted to hear, not because they were intentionally manipulating anything. Again, this was, these were not sort of conducted according to research standards. This is a much more informal type of interaction that they're having. Uh, with these communities, I think they went in there in good faith and really wanted to understand and keep an open mind. Uh, they just ended up hearing what they were predisposed to hear. And and to to your point, I do want to be clear that I'm not. It, it did bear some some resemblance. The report bore a lot of resemblance to the things that I heard. It just it just was somewhat one sided. So we certainly did hear an intense work ethic and people. Um, uh, enthusiastic and adaptable. We also heard people who were the opposite of that. We also heard uh, a, a, a darker 
view of how things are. And I think that you see this in general, whether it's in political reporting uh, or in just the way people make generalizations, there's a tendency to smooth over the rough edges, right? And try to highlight the view of America that is sort of cleaned up and optimistic and and what have you. Um, But as you said at the beginning, people don't fit neatly into boxes. People are all over the place. People are uh, sometimes negative and hateful or pessimistic, and that's part of reality too. And I don't think you can comprehend the full glorious weirdness of America if you're not including that in your lens. Yeah, as as Eric Levitt says in my interview with him, um, I think he says this in the Times piece as well, a self-described moderate can simultaneously support million-dollar maximum wage and barring gays and lesbians from teaching in public schools. Like, those two beliefs can coexist in a person. People, it's, <laughs> we're a Absolutely. multifarious, odd bunch of people in this country. But that, in particular, <laughs> is the least represented point of view in um, in political debates, right, is the fiscally liberal but socially conservative. Because you have, you know, fiscally liberal and fiscally, uh, I'm sorry, fiscally liberal and socially liberal perspective is well mapped out. The socially conservative and socially, and fiscally conservative perspective is, is well mapped out. And then you have the centrist generally whether they're center-right or center-left, tend to be some combination of fiscally conservative and socially liberal, right? It's like we want to fix the deficit and let everybody get married. So, And that turns out to be a quite fringe belief, that sort of libertarian uh, belief set turns out to be quite fringe in the American public overall. Uh, But it's quite common, say, inside the Beltway. Gun control Uh, and entitlement reform? I mean, that really does not sound like it's winning over anyone except for Michael Bloomberg. (laughs) I was going to say it's the Bloomberg vote. Um, And also making your electricity more expensive, don't forget. Um, (laughs) but, but but, But what really has almost no representation or didn't until recently in that political debate is is the other sort of idiosyncratic uh, point of view, which is the fiscally liberal but socially conservative. And I think that is the uh, voter that Trump sort of activated, the voter that yes. is nostalgic for an America that used to be, whether it was you know, the way marriage used to be or the way the races used to interact or the way um, uh, the men and women used to interact um, and fundamentally traditionalist in its conception of society, uh, but also pissed off at the economic elites and the bankers and not interested in, you know, making Social Security and Medicare stingier, not interested in giving tax breaks to corporations. Uh, and so that that's a point of view that Trump really did speak to powerfully. And, and those were and you would meet people uh, at I met people during the primaries who said they were choosing between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders because they, you know, they they thought Trump would stop their brothers and sisters from going overseas and dying in pointless wars. Um, But they also thought that everybody who works for a living should be able to make a living. And Bernie is the standard bearer for that point of view. So um, 
I think that there is uh, there there's a nexus there that we don't often recognize. Yeah, I I think that's entirely right. And that just because Trump is very much not governing from that position, that we shouldn't forget that he very much ran on it in many ways, as did Pat Buchanan really beginning to plumb that political space in the 1990s before it had a chance to take over the Republican Party. But I think he presciently saw that there was this this untapped um, constituency or, or ideological orientation. Yeah. Well, and it hasn't taken over the Republican Party. because If you look at the, what the Republican Party is actually doing, yeah, they're sort no, of smiling and nodding <laughs> at Trump. And then and then, you know, they, he's, he's got a quite traditional conservative Supreme Court justice, quite traditional, uh, if not radical, conservative appointees in the agencies. Uh, his main accomplishment at this point as, pre- as president has been um, the deregulation that he's doing through the executive branch. Uh and that's a tremendous positive if you're an ideological conservative. But it, but he didn't the the people that he attracted in the primary and the general election uniquely, um, they w- weren't coming to him because of a message about deregulation and making you know it easier to to do business in America. Um, or cutting the corporate tax rate from thirty five to twenty. And then this is the crux of tax reform now, right? Exactly the the the, the great tax reform, which is. Republicans sort of only hope to get something done this year is going to consist largely of a corporate tax cut. Uh, and that was certainly part of the tax plans that uh, Trump came up with when he was pressed. But I don't think that you could say rhetorically that was the main gist of either what he was saying or what people were hearing from him as an economic message during the campaign. Returning to your story before I let you go, one of the researchers' big takeaways she told you, is that people want to be listened to and affirmed. She told you, the things people end up saying to us are really kind of miraculous, considering that five minutes before, they had never met us. I think that has to do with us saying, this matters. You are the democracy. You matter. I thought that was a really interesting comment and one upshot of it for me was this prevailing worldview from the centrist establishment that still, even though the premise of this very listening tour was we got something wrong and let's find out what it is, that they still deep down don't believe there's something substantively wrong with the current political economic order. There's this notion that neoliberalism just needs a new sales pitch. Right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think um, that and because they sort of heard what they wanted to hear from the people that they met, they were able to be comforted by this tour and have some of their angst about the election assuaged and put to rest because they could say, okay, uh, it's not as, it's not so bad uh, as, as we might have thought from from this outcome that we didn't like, uh, it's just it's all just a big misunderstanding. And if we can just find a way to to listen to each other and to speak to one another and and to craft the right sales pitch for the same basic agenda, uh, we can fix this thing. And um, to me, that felt insufficient. To me, that felt like a failure to appreciate the depth of of the real divisions that exist. Molly Ball, thank you very much.
Thank you so much for having me. Molly Ball is a national political correspondent at Time. My second guest today, Eric Levitz, just published an op-ed in the New York Times that is a great companion to Ball's reportage, entitled, America is Not Center-Right. Eric Levitz, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. Your piece carefully debunks the conventional wisdom embraced by so-called Democratic centrists and Republicans alike that the United States is basically, at its core, a center-right nation where nearly 70% of voters are either moderate or conservative. Why is that wrong? You know, in some sense, it is true that America is a center-right nation. Obviously, if you look at uh, the scope of our welfare state, the level of our uh, taxation, particularly of high-income people, we are functionally uh, a center-right nation in how we're governed. Um, But there is a conflation between that fact uh, and the ideological bent of the electorate. There's this idea that the policies that we live under are an actual reflection of the popular will. Um, And in this concept that uh, there is a relationship between the ideology of the American people and the policies of the American state helps to legitimate um, the, you know, particularly unkind version of neoliberalism or whatever you want to call it that we live under. Um, Now, the way that this argument is rationalized is that if you ask um, American voters to self-identify ideologically, uh, relatively few people call themselves liberals, uh, and far more people call themselves conservatives uh, or moderates. Also, if you ask general predisposition questions um, about, you know, how people feel about whether they trust the government, uh, you know, how they feel about centralized authority or collectivism or whatever, uh, on, on those disposition questions, you also get more right-wing answers than you do in other contexts. But when you drill when you drill down to actual concrete policies, things are rather different. Yes. Um, when asked on, on discrete policy questions, you know, uh, how, how people, you know, feel about uh, whether they, you know, obviously like Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid, um, whether they think that the government should spend more or less on education, more or less on health care. Um, on, on these issues, there's always for, for, for decades, there's this idea, there's this common idea that there's this, this paradox in that Americans are operationally liberal and uh, ideologically conservative. Um, but the paradox is actually, you know, less uh, befuddling when you realize how superficial ideological self-identification is. And that's a, a pretty core part of my argument, which is that there's been substantial Political science research for decades now demonstrates that uh, when voters say that they are moderate, conservative, or liberal, the vast majority of them don't mean what uh, pundits believe that they do. You write, um, you make this uh, very interesting argument that, quote, the vast majority of the electorate has no ideology whatsoever. Um, What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think that, you know, this is Jacobin, obviously. So, you know, in Marxist terms, uh, you know, you could argue that there is, uh, you know, an, an unconscious whatever like ideology that that people have their belief system shaped by, um, you know, the 
the system that they live under. But in terms of uh, political science ideology, in terms of a left-right ideological spectrum, um, in 1964, this, the political scientist Philip Converse did this extensive survey, uh, or, sorry, analysis of survey data from the previous uh, three American elections. Um, and what he did is, is looked in the survey data for what percentage of people who picked an ideological self-identification uh, could, in further questions, actually like give a coherent definition of what liberal and conservative means and attach those two terms to the correct parties, to the parties that most represented conservatism and liberalism. Um, and he found that only 17% of American voters could, um, and that the vast majority of voters, when they were asked to talk about their understanding of politics, they did not describe it as a fight over abstract theories of good government, um, but rather as a conflict between interests and identity groups. Uh, you know, ordinary voters did not, you know, try to figure out which party, which candidate best represented their, like, political philosophy. They picked the one that seemed to represent uh, people like them. And, you know, they could define that group in terms of class. You know, if they were union voters, you know, the Democratic Party stands with union people, uh, management and owners, they, those are the people who vote Republicans, it's us versus them. Uh, or in terms of religion, you know, that, that uh, you know, uh, in certain areas that, that Catholics would favor Democrats versus Republicans. Uh, and, and so I think this makes some intuitive sense, you know, I think because uh, the political conversation is dominated by elites who pay ex really close attention to politics and have really uh, pretty well elaborated ideological views on the issues. Um, but, but if you think about someone who's less immediately engaged in this stuff, you know, the left to right political spectrum is this construct that's, uh, you know, born of seating arrangements during the French Revolution. Whereas the impulse to define yourself in relationship to an in-group and opposition to an out-group is, uh, you know, a characteristic of our species for centuries on, right? That this is a basic survival strategy for human beings is tribalism. Um, and so I think it makes a lot of sense that your average voter is, is not thinking about, you know, placing, well, okay, I, I'm a conservative and, you know, the... Uh, a single-payer healthcare system, if I charted that on an ideological spectrum, that the amount of state involvement there puts, that's all the way over on the left here, and I'm on the right here, so clearly I don't support that. Um, I think it, it's much more about, well, you know, who's who's losing money in this, who's gaining it, what is this for, Who, who's winning? Is yeah, so-called, so, so um, you know, uh, centrist political elites, they're, they're, they're first projecting the idea that there are these ideologies that they would find coherent on the left-right political spectrum onto the electorate as a whole. And then that's sort of the first step in what they're doing. And then the second step is that they're projecting their particular uh, notion of what centrism or moderate is onto the electorate as a whole. What do people mean when they identify in a poll as moderate? And I'm guessing from your piece that the answer is many different things. Um, and what do third way types believe that they mean? when they say moderate and how do the third weight neoliberal centrist types exploit that ambiguity to their political advantage in in this uh, relatively new book from the uh, political scientists donald uh, kinder and, and nathan calmo um the first thing they do is establish that uh, the converse essay that i referenced earlier you know one might think okay there wasn't that much ideological voting in 1964 
um, when we were in the you know heart of the New Deal consensus, there was there wasn't that much ideology in American politics. Um, but what they demonstrate is that uh, even today, uh, the the electorate's slightly more ideological, but 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 not very. Um, but the other thing that they they established is that most people who pick moderate, um, when they're asked uh, what their ideology is, people use that as an opt out, right? They if people who don't really understand what liberal and conservative mean or, or aren't quite sure and they just pick moderate because they, they aren't one or the other. Um, and the, the result of that is that uh, research from Stanford political scientist David Brookman has shown that uh, moderates are actually as likely to hold extreme positions on discrete issues as anybody else. Um, they're just ideologically And sometimes discrete positions that, in terms of conventional left to right understandings of American ideology, could be quite contradictory on face value at face value. Yeah. You know, there's nothing there's nothing inherent to uh, liking social security and uh, supporting gay marriage. I mean, there's just no real fundamental connection between between these ideas. And, and so Brookman's study found there are, you know, moderate voters who uh, would support a one million dollar maximum income who don't think gays and lesbians should be allowed to teach public school. Uh, and we want all the undocumented immigrants in the country uh, thrown out and they, they identify as moderate. Um, which is obviously radically different than uh, the moderates that Third Way um, sort of holds up as, you know, the the heart of the American electorate uh, that is consistently disserved by these uh, partisans, uh, these extreme ideological, unpragmatic partisans. Uh, and if we could just give, you know, the seventy percent in the middle. Uh, you know, a, a, a nonpartisan, pragmatic option um, that this would not only, you know, win at the ballot box overwhelmingly, but also be just incredibly healthy for American civic society. And that's the idea of third way. And there, there, there is really support for it. And in fact, um, in elite circles, in elite circles where they're really, uh, where people really are ideological, I, I imagine the third way people do meet self-identified moderates who have positions that are similar to the, you know, the, on Wall Street, uh, people who are, uh, you know, alienated by gun culture, but don't like the anti-business tenor of the Democratic Party, they, they probably call themselves moderate and, and they, uh, you know, uh, are, are the constituency that the third way to a large extent. If you're, um, if you're say, Michael Bloomberg or personal friends with Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I I think so. And, and the, the the irony is that um, that combination of views is a, is a really fringe voter in the American electorate. Um, uh, Lee Drutman, um, who is a, another political scientist um, who did, uh, I believe he's a New America person, um, but he did an analysis of voter study group data from the 2016 election, uh, where he found that 73% of the American electorate um, Described, subscribed to when you looked at their answers in these survey questions, they were they were coded overall as being left of center on economic issues. Um, the America was so seventy three percent were on the left side of an economic axis on so called identity issues, what he coded as identity issues, which you know you can debate those those have economic implications. But um, there was a slight advantage; it was like fifty one forty nine to the right. But 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 on economic issues, the country was overwhelmingly to the left. And then if you looked at that libertarian corner, the, the, the group of people that have uh, 
socially liberal views, economically conservative views, it was almost, that quadrant was almost empty. Um, the, the, the number of people in the United States who want Social Security to be cut, uh, you know, while also supporting uh, <coughs> uh, gay, gay marriage and, um, you know, gun control, this is not, uh, this is not a significant constituency. Well, uh, Bloomberg again, and also Peter Thiel would vehemently disagree with uh, this data that you're citing here. But um, one piece of what's going on here uh, with the elite discourse and rhetoric around political moderation is this sleight of hand where they represent their views as common sense, pragmatic, and apolitical, which um, is really just a savvy way of covering up their an actual political agenda, which is their political agenda, which is a business agenda. So there is a lot of poll data to suggest, you know, that a, a social democratic platform, individual policies, that there is like a real strong support in the electorate. But that said, if you reword those questions slightly, you can get conservative results too. Um, my argument, I do think that there is a majoritarian support of economic of left of center economic agenda especially with what the spectrum is right now i mean the republican party is so radical you know there aren't a lot of americans who believe that we should add 1.5 trillion dollars to the deficit for corporate tax cuts but can only afford to spend 1 billion on the opioid crisis which is what the republican party is doing right now but that is not so to the extent that that is the right americans are very much left of center um but the, the, the key thing is how malleable public opinion is. Um, because the, the public is not very ideological uh, and, and is in fact more tribal, political elites have tremendous power to set the terms of ideological debate. So one of the other things that I looked at, not only are moderates not moderate, but liberals and conservatives aren't nearly as liberal and conservative as, as you might think. I want to get to partisanship in a second. Um... But just really quick before we move on, I, th I think that that is really important um, for you to note, to have that caveat that, yes, in these polls, Americans support these discrete left economic policy items, but phrased differently, they don't necessarily support them. I don't think we should run away from that. I think the, the, the difference between supporting Medicare for all, say, and opposing the same thing if it's phrased as government-run health insurance, that, that that is the very dynamic political space that we have to be acting on and in in a, in a realistic way on the left that, that, we're, that we're fighting on. That's, that's the ideological political terrain on some, in some sense. Uh, yeah, I 100% agree. And, and that, that's what I, what I was – long way that I was taking to your previous question is that uh, one of the – primary moves um, that third way and in, in, in those sorts of centrists do is uh, to posit a static uh, public opinion to, to, to act as though elites do not have the power, as though the current policy regime, the current positions of the major parties are these perfect reflections of American public opinion um, and that Republican voters are as staunchly <laughs> committed to fiscal conservatism as Paul Ryan is, um, when in fact, you know, reality is, is radically different. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, and, and that is, that that's where politics happens, where the right, you know, is going to work as hard as it can to uh, associate in 
certain white voters' minds, the idea that Medicare for all is really Medicare for lazy black people that are coming out of your taxes, right? And, and the left is going to try to say, no, it, it's, it's health care that's being taken from these idle, rich trust fund kids. We're going to take their money. We're going to give you to make sure that working people can afford to get taken care of. It's your mother. It's your grandmother, whatever. Obviously, you know, you message to non-white voters as well, and non-white voters have their own hang-ups about the government. But, but just saying that it, it's how, for most voters, this is about tribe. And the 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 goal, I think, of progressive politics is to um, cultivate identities that are conducive to progressive policy, um, which, you know... I think you just gave a, uh, gonna be over, a implicit identity. overview of the Iron Stash versus Paul Ryan uh, messaging war. Um, so, okay. So now I do want to turn to the question of partisanship, which your exploration of which was very interesting. Um, one thing you talk about is how people decide on their partisan allegiances. And that's this sort of, um, group in group, out group identification, which can be, um, something really awesome like class or can be really something toxic like the white race. That makes sense. I think of how, say, White Southerners once embraced the New Deal Democratic Party, but were then willing to move in mass to a Republican Party over civil rights. A class fight, which was taking place in the early 20th century, that sort of pushed race, race issues and racial justice to the side, was replaced by a race fight. And then ultimately, under Bill Clinton, not only was class pushed to the side, but also substantive racial concerns were as well. So the upshot, I think, was that the Democratic Party became something that very few people in a kind of group identity way could uh, strongly identif- identify with. Well, yeah, it's complicated. I mean, I think, you know, Clinton's election was in no small part a product of him uh, successfully playing to white working class racial identity, right? I mean, with Sister Soldier and uh, welfare reform. Ricky Ray Rector and uh, you know the other on that stuff. The the consultant class and the politicians. The way we talk about it is very in touch with the fact that the politics is tribal. I mean, the the goal was specifically to signal that the Democratic Party is not uh, that the is not owned by African Americans uh, or unions. These these groups that were out groups to to certain portions of the population. Um, and I wouldn't want to downplay that, but, but, um, but I do think that there was also at the same time an effort to make the democratic party, the party of the professional class, the ascendant professional class and, and suburban America, and that there was a lot of service to that identity group. Um, and, and not as much, I mean, I, I agree that there was an economic stuff, a transition to trying to appeal to the professional class rather than the um, industrial working class. Certainly. Yeah. I think I miss, I misspoke outlining the trajectory there. I think you're exactly right. In the sense that Clinton was substituting the the working class group appeal for professional class appeal and then giving that kind of like white working class people um, playing to their white identity politics instead. But then what happens, I think, later on is that the Democratic Party stops playing the white identity politics as explicitly, embraces the sort of thin superficial notions of of diversity while holding on to the Clintonian neoliberal economic agenda. And then that really, I think, is the recipe for being a party that 
white racists aren't going to identify with as, uh, and that people aren't going to identify with as workers. That just leaves very few points for people to, to glom onto. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I tentatively agree with that. I think, you know, obviously we don't live in a just world where like, uh, you know, good policy always translates into good politics or whatever. So just, I, I do think there's like, you know, just sheer charisma. I mean, Obama as a talented politician was able to cultivate group identities, you know, was able to obviously, obviously, you know, intense, intense, unique ability by virtue of his identity and his skills to make uh, non-white voters, specifically African-American voters, feel that the Democratic Party was for them. Um, but his skills were such that he was also able to make, you know, a, a critical mass of Rust Belt whites feel like the Democratic Party was for them, at least more for them than Mitt Romney or John McCain was. Um, and this, this was, you know, Hillary Clinton ran on a more progressive platform than Barack Obama ever did. Um, but, but her skills and her, her, her message w- were not uh, sufficient. So I, I agree I, that, 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 um, that part of the Democratic Party's problems is, are rooted in its, um, in its ideology and in the groups that it's reaching for. But I also wouldn't downplay just, you know, how sheer just candidate talent and these other like non-ideological aspects influence uh, who wins and who loses. Yeah, no, but by by no means. I think that's right on. And that um, Obama is one of the most politically talented people to ever live. And that that was good for the Democratic Party winning elections in 2008 and 2012, but also maybe papered over how deep the party's the problems uh, with the party's appeal had had become, uh, which is evidenced by the the mass losses in state legislatures, for example, during Obama's tenure, yeah. even as Obama remained personally incredibly popular. Yeah, and I would, I would also pin that on it's a whole separate conversation, but but the way Obama's approach to party building and the just general myopia of Democrats and the Democratic donor class, their obsession with the presidential level and, and total um, to the detriment of of how much they invest in building up in the states. So I, I want to actually uh, turn to the power of partisanship now, which uh, you write, the average conservative Republican isn't a Republican because she's a conservative. She self-identifies as a conservative because she's a Republican. Can you talk a little bit about how par- how powerful partisanship is, how its power operates, and what does that power look like at a moment where they're seems to be such widespread anger and disaffection with the two major parties. Yeah. So I think that, you know, like you were saying earlier, we're born into families, uh, regions, religions, classes, races. Um, and by virtue of, of these group ties, we tend to uh, latch on to one or the other of the two major parties. Um and then once that partisanship identity is there, that can be the most powerful and, and is functionally, especially negative partisanship, knowing who you are and that you're not a Democrat and you're not a Republican. These are really powerful group identities within our politics. Um, and so in uh, Kinder and Calmo's book, uh, in analyzing the survey data, they, they find that, you know, uh, once you control for partisanship, ideological identification doesn't really tell you what voters, what policies voters are going to support, except for there seems to be to a certain extent, um, there's a decent number of Americans who when they're asked if they're liberal or conservative, think you're asking 
uh, about their their sexual morality. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> are you a, or are you like a family person? And so there is like correlation between ideological self identification and some like social issues. Um, but so that's like that's like Mike Pence and and, and company, the people who uh, don't eat dinner without their yeah. But you could even their, have their some like pretty like liberal people who are just kind of normies and just don't they associate like they're whatever. But um, but yeah, uh, but but otherwise there there really isn't a connection and it ultimately seems like what ideological identification is for most voters is a post facto summary of they're attached to a party and then they learn that that party is called conservative or that party is called liberal. And so they identify with it. And, and you see this in um, a few places. Actually, there was a recent column by Thomas Etzel in the Times. Um, uh, I really wish they would put him in print. Yeah. I don't I don't get it. Yeah, he's the best they got. Um and uh, but but it was it was about this survey data showing that actually voters who identified strong conservatives were more likely to support if you told them, hey, Trump just came out for, you know, whatever, like expanding Medicaid or, you know, a liberal program. Strong conservatives were more likely than than weak conservatives to follow Trump wherever he went in the ideological spectrum, left or right, because by saying they were strongly conservative, what they really meant is that they're strong tribalists for the Republican Party. Um, and so you see this, you know, Trump has given a wonderful illustration of this uh, to the extent that he's been able to transform how the typical Republican conservative voter thinks about free trade. There's, uh, you know, the month before he ran for office, I believe it was Pew uh, found like, you know, something like 60 percent of Republicans saying that, that free trade agreements have been good for the United States. One year later, just the opposite. Um and also American policy towards Russia and, and a bunch of other sort of issues where he's been idiosyncratic, uh, the base has followed him. Um, and uh, so one implication of this is that, you know, the, the, the party elites, the people with authority within the Democratic and Republican Party, to a certain extent, obviously there are limits, uh, you know, like I said before, uh, for all their advocacy, you know, Paul Ryan and, and Donald Trump can't really get your average Republican voter really excited about the idea of cutting a trillion dollars for Medicaid uh, to give it to, you know, uh, to pad the passive income of millionaires. Um, <laughs> it's amazing that that's not uh, something that, that the, the masses are mobilizing but, around. <laughs> but within a broad range, the party elite has a tremendous amount of power to, to tell people, uh, to tell liberals and conservatives what the liberal and conservative position on a given issue is. Um, and this is what I really find most insidious about the the, the concept of the center and, and the third way thing is that it is suggesting that like the Democratic Party elites are, are helpless. They're just responding to what the public demands and the public demands, uh, you know, support for Wall Street and, uh, you know, targeted tax credits and that's it or something when it's it, the, the relationship is generally the other way around. There are constraints on our politics. And I think specifically in a majority white nation with the history that we have, it is genuinely true that, um, that on, on, on racial issues, there, there is, uh, there is difficulty for the democratic party that is real. You know, it's not all made up that, that, that we could have social democracy in a second if the Democrats would just let us, but it just, there's, there's no evidence that economic conservatism is in the democratic party's interests or that, 
like we said before, the idea that uh, a party that's for entitlement reform and gun control is somehow an electoral, uh, you know, panacea. This is, you know, total fiction. This is pushing an ideological project and it's doing the opposite of, of what it claims to be. It's completely unpragmatic. Paraphrasing Brecht, neoliberal centrists have abolished the people and elected another that better suits their their needs. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that is appropriate. You have brought me to what I wanted to talk about next, which is how Trump fits into this matter of the power of partisanship. As you said, he, for many in the conservative rank and file, has very quickly remade what being conservative means on so many issues. But I also don't think that happened in a in a vacuum. I think he could do so in part because Republican voters animated by fear of of Islam, uh, hatred of Islam, um, anti-gay sentiment, anti-black sentiment, they were never so fervently motivated, like you said earlier, by things like repealing the estate tax. So I think Trump's power in some way was to to leverage a latent contradiction within the party that Pat Buchanan had presciently explored you know, in his runs in the early, ni- yep, early yeah, and mid-1990s. Yeah, I don't want to exaggerate. Um, you know, uh, party elites are not un- omnipotent because, again, the, the partisan identity is typically derivative of other identities, um, even though, you know, practically speaking, once you, you've got it, it can really be the most salient thing. But, um, you know, within the Republican coalition, you've got people attached to the Republican Party for class reasons, right? Uh, but, but that's a small inherently as the upper class party that that that's a small portion of the coa i mean you know to the aggregate population at this point the republican agenda the people it really serves is like a really tiny slice i mean you've got a republican tax plan now that is taking benefits away from the upper middle class like the upper upper middle class and giving it to you know the heirs of the states so uh on 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 the issues on the identities that fiscal conservatism serves directly you know, that that's a very small group. And yeah, so Trump has a lot of freedom to play around with the fiscal policy, because that's not what is tethering uh, most Republicans to the party at this point. It is the the racial and regional identity, you know, rural identity, the sense of being left behind by these uh, cosmopolitan cities that have a bunch of cultural differences. Um, and, uh, you know, this fear of of difference that, that comes with living in really homogenous communities that are slowly becoming less homogenous. The, the effects of mass immigration are creeping into these um, small towns in the, in the Midwest. And uh, there is, you know, a reaction to that. And that's um, exacerbated by economic catastrophe at the worst and the prospect of downward mobility at the best. I mean, these things are not, are not neatly separated in how people decide uh, on their worldview. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, you've got tons of uh, very wealthy racists in the exurbs, um, but it also, uh, based on the latest data that I've seen, you know, I, I believe that um, at least one recent study showed that Trump won 61 percent of whites in the bottom quintile of the income distribution. Um, and I do think it is the case that I think lost, last place aversion is a real thing. And I think that to the extent that you are not gaining status uh, as a human being in our society through uh, the economy, that you aren't asserting your worth through the meritocracy and through uh, you know your your success 
in your job, I think that, that the status that you derive from your racial identity, from your your ancestry as a native-born American or American of many generations or an Anglo-Saxon American, I, I think that becomes more dear to you. Um, and so I do think that's what's, you know, one of the many things that's not just, you know, unjust about an economy that, that, that fails a large section of the population, but dangerous um, is, you know, that the, the scarcity and the lack of opportunity for other forms of status, uh, you know, uh, heightens the worst aspects of tribalism. Yeah, we, um, we uh, not to go down this path a little bit further before going back to your article, because this is something that we've corresponded about in the past. There's this really frustrating dynamic to this debate over race and class in Trump's appeal where people point to the fact that like rich Republicans voted for Trump as evidence that he uh, didn't have some specific appeal to downwardly mobile or poor white people. Um, and that's just a, a, a misleading argument. He both um, appealed to anyone who was a traditional Republican ultimately and exurban upper middle class bigots, but also had a very, I think, uh, I hate to say this, but adroitly tailored message to to the Rust Belt that there's plenty of research by David Autor and others shows really demonstrates really b- bore fruit in terms of linking fears over economic decline and increasing diversity. Obviously, it takes, you know, a certain kind of racism to be able to look at Trump's campaign and say that that the other stuff isn't disqualifying. I mean, even if you believed his message about taking power away from this, uh, you know, cosmopolitan elite that this financial elite that had bled the country dry and getting new trade deals and, and real industrial policy um, and, and all these, you know, populist vaguely left parts of his economic message, you know, um, at the same time, like if you really saw Muslims and undocumented immigrants as f- fully human, that wouldn't matter. But you know, that mundane level of racism of just being able to not hear what you don't want to hear um, and not really not not fully treat uh, other racial groups as as equal to your own is pervasive. And that, you know, there's no winning coalition that doesn't include. I mean, that that is to to an extent. I mean, uh, there's a continuum on which on which, you know, most of the country falls and maybe we all do on some level. And so um, it's not it's not to say that we shouldn't note that racism and condemn it and, and try to, you know, uh, elevate consciousness about this. Um, but I do think that sometimes in the sweeping aside of in, in, in the, the, the terming uh, Trump voters uniformly racist um, can, you know, obscure the fact that just like as a practical matter, it's possible that that, that is true, but also that the, that the motive that absent you take away all that populism and a certain certain voters fall away. Like even though right, that some marginal subset of the Trump voter uh, coalition uh, was genuinely motivated, was willing to accept the racism, uh, but was genuinely motivated by the, um, the his status as an outsider who was uh, condemning an economic system that wasn't working for them. Uh, you know, it's hard to figure out how big that coalition is, or that contingent is. But, I, but yeah. I agree generally, but I think I would even warn against kind of parsing these as parsing race and economic concerns as kind of discrete categories. Instead, analytically, I think it's important to think about how the structure of the American economy um, incubates and has long incubated since 
Southern planters during the colonial period decided that it would be useful to uh, slightly elevate white indentured servants and make black slaves a permanent cast of chattel slaves, how how it has always functioned within a certain system and try to a- analyze the interconnections between them rather than kind of like, oh, this voter was more motivated by race and less motivated by economic concerns, which is which is how pollsters and um, I think a lot of mainstream political commentary sort of encourages people to to think about things. Yeah, I would I, I would think that's that, that's largely right. OK, so back to your article. Thanks for going down that tangent with me. Yep. What is the upshot of this power of partisanship for the left. How should we think about this power of political elites to dictate ideological terms in a way that can work to our advantage, especially given that so many Americans agree with us on so many of the specific issues on the table, at least when phrased in a certain way? Yeah, well, I think that that it's really important to have a left presence in these elite spaces. Um, you know, I personally, I think that a lot of people on the left are more pessimistic about the Democratic Party than I am. I, I think that Hillary Clinton's platform had left a lot to be desired, but it was moving in a direction that was better than Obama's and that that had real aspects of, you know, light social democracy. Um, and that since the election, uh, you know, the Chuck Schumer, the better deal agenda, they just attached a bunch of like every demand that labor has. Obviously, the Democratic Party has a long tradition of uh, championing labor's causes uh, when it doesn't matter. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I think that that advocacy is important. And uh, I, I think that the support, you know, the, the people who are trying to make their names for 2020, whatever Third Way is doing, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, these ambitious rising star people are signing on to single payer health care, to universal child care, uh, to paid family leave. I mean, it, it's a very social democratic agenda. And I think that is a function of changes in the elite that, that since 2008, um, even the, the wonk class, a significant portion of the econ- economist wonk class, um, especially the younger people, uh, were radicalized by that. And the the you know the there were there are certainly people who are still uh, working to rationalize the old regime. But you know you look at someone like Jason Furman, like the Obama administration's uh, you know Obama administration economist, and the things that he's writing right now are, are really you know in in the nineties this would be like fringe radical stuff that 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 we should prioritize distribution over growth. Um, so I, I think that it really matters what elites think. It really matters that the left has a presence in these circles. Uh, you know, I, I think that Matt Brunig's uh, project of trying to, you know, set up this this think tank to get, I think that's really important. I think we need we need people in elite spaces making these arguments. And I think that, that uh, you know, this is why Jacobin is, is, is relevant is, as well. You know, I, I think that obviously you want to have a working class readership and, and get to that too. But But I think that there is real value in just in having, you know, the the Brooklyn hipsters who are going to move to D.C. and become staffers and stuff like that matters, too. So, uh, yeah, I, I just think that obviously it's important to organize and, and that that to amass power that way. But I, I do think there's also real like winning the 
where ideology ideology exists among the elite, and that's where the ideological battle has to be waged to a, a, a decent extent. And I think the I, I agree, and I think the most prominent elite stage where the left, for really the first time in a long time, has made its stage heard, was the Democratic Party's presidential primary, and yep. it just can't be overstated how much Bernie Sanders saying these things on a national stage as part of a, as the head of a growing and shockingly powerful movement really reset the terms of the debate from center to left. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and you see it with Corbyn in the UK as well. And I think that, yeah, I mean, I think what, what, what you know, they revealed, you know, is, yeah, is that there is, you know, this malleability, there is this, this openness. Um, and that, again, you know, I think it's really about identity. One less example that I, I'm sort of obsessed with is to illustrate the fact that, you know, that the the barrier is identity, not ideology. When Corbyn, uh, after the, the Grenfell Tower fire, uh, proposed uh, the government seizing the apartments of, uh, you know, millionaires who don't actually live in London and, and, and commandeering that and putting the people who were displaced by Grenfell, that this is like, if you were going to chart this ideologically on a left-right spectrum, you would be so far that the contempt for property rights inherent to this proposal, you're like way fringe, whatever. But in identity terms, the what people hear is, do I want to take from these people who are driving up property, like driving up my rent prices, um, you know, and give to these people who've been ill-served uh, by my government and are just experienced a tragedy? And that's a majoritarian position, you know, when, when phrase... Uh, in those terms, you know, when that, that policy was pulled, it was a majority position to, yeah, let's just take their property. And this is one thing that's really mind boggling about the so-called centrist position is that they believe that in a politics, a non-political politics where no one is demonized, where there's no enemy articulated and what really ho- horrified them about the Bernie campaign when his, was his demonization of the super rich in Wall Street. But as you suggest in your piece, the left really needs a class-based outgroup to mobilize people against because the other option that the right has very coherently offered again and again is just unmitigated anti-outgroup propaganda against queer people, people of color, Muslims, what have you. Yeah, identities gain coherence when defined against another. Um, you know, that that's how you shape an identity. You you define yourself against what you are not. Um, and it's not like this was totally absent. Like Hillary Clinton ran a campaign defined against the deplorables, right? The the, the forward thinking Americans against, you know, the unenlightened. Um, and you know, let's let's not that that was good enough to win the popular vote. It also was a good enough in, in focusing in those terms to get historically Republican dwellers of Greenwich, Connecticut, to vote for the Democrat. Um, it's not like that was totally unreasonable, but 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 as far as the the way that the Electoral College distributes power, it was not a good idea. Um, and also, as far as building the coalition, you know that that you and I would like to build, it, it's not ideal at all. Um, so 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 yeah, I, I think that it's not. It, it, Almost every campaign is going to be engaged in this process in, in, in some form. But the question is, what identity do we want to try to cultivate? Um, what what you know? What is the the politics that we want to build uh, so as to make it possible to do what we want to do? 
Eric Levitz, thank you very much. Thank you. Eric Levitz is a political columnist at New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once thundered from the commanding heights, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, mostly twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky, Our Postmaster General is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Any propaganda on our behalf, via social media, in person, however, is greatly appreciated. And please do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. (laughs) 